Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of The London Circle where today I'll be discussing with Dr. Omar Abdelmanan, the founder of Health Workers for Palestine, the reasons why it seems absolutely clear that Israel is targeting the medical sector in Gaza. Why is it that there is such an intent to wipe out every remnant of the health sector there? I'll be discussing with him what we can do over here about media bias and about aspects related to the future. Enjoy. I mean, when we look at the situation uh, and the health sector, particularly in Gaza, which has been obliterated, uh, I mean, I, I, I doubt that there's there's a word that can actually encapsulate what's been happening to uh, to the health sector in in Gaza. Um, I, I have to say that personally, looking on to what's happening with utter horror, and obviously I, I examine the various parts that um, uh, project what, as a political analyst, I would see as a complete scene where I can make an intelligent, informed sort of commentary. Um, I have to say that the way in which the targeting of hospitals, of medical personnel, seems to me like it's absolutely deliberate there's there's no question about it especially when we're talking about you know one of the most sophisticated machines military machines in the entire world we're talking about uh, a country uh, that prides itself on its specific espionage and uh, you know informed um so it can't be a mistake all this can't be a mistake but what i ask is why to what end? What end? What, 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 how, 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 would, how do you see this? I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think this is clearly deliberate. Anyone who's watching this from the sidelines, any, not even a political analyst, but uh, a medic, a non-academic, seeing the levels of targeting at every systemic level within healthcare, within public health. You know, we're talking about not just hospitals being targeted, but paramedics, ambulances on the way between north to south doctors being killed, snipers firing into hospitals. We saw the nurse at Nasser Medical Complex being shot at in the hospital corridor, sustaining a chest injury that then led him to be operated on, survived, alhamdulillah, but one of you know the lucky ones. I'll give you an example just before I talk about why I think this is the case. And this is exactly to the point that this is the most sophisticated army in the world. One of my colleagues, Professor Nick Maynard, who's just come out of Al-Aqsa Hospital, was describing how um, he was talking to one of his colleagues inside the hospital and they were informed that during one of the operations they were performing, uh, an, an Israeli drone called a quadropter, which is basically, I'd never heard this term before. So this is essentially a drone with machine guns on it and it's remote controlled. Literally, you know, it, this is a tiny piece of equipment that flies into buildings through windows, through corridors, and can fire at will, and it can fire directly to one person. This is what they used to assassinate the Hamas commander in Beirut. This is how targeted they are. So one of these came into the hospital window and shot at one of the medical staff who was operating on a patient, um, who was looking after a patient within the hospital at the time. So when you talk about the ability to target, for sure, they can target people, and this has fish recognition software on it. So they know exactly who they are attacking. So when it comes to why, the simplest answer I can find is that you kind of have to think about to what end. So to what end? So they are, there is clearly a genocide taking place. And in order to allow the extermination of a, of a people, one of the things you need to do is first dehumanize these people. But following on from that, you need to take out the elite of society, the most academic, sort of highly performing people within society, journalists, scholars. academics, scientists, doctors, lawyers, and doctors, especially, and medics, healthcare professionals, are bearing the brunt of witnessing the effects of carpet bombing or the effects of white phosphorus. So each individual one of them is essentially a potential statesman for an ICJ case. Every single one of them could become, in the future, someone who bears witness to medical war crimes and atrocities that have happened. So what do you do with them? You kill them, and if you can't kill them, then you detain them and beat them into submission. And 
you know, the story that's been haunting me for a few days and it's horrific, but I have to say it because it's it's really important to remember what is happening to those who have not been killed but have been detained. So just for context, since this began, over 120 healthcare workers have been detained illegally, are being held hostage by the Israeli occupation forces. Dr. Mohammed Arun, who is the chief of surgery at um, one of the major hospitals in Gaza, came out of captivity after 46 days of illegal detention. What was described by eyewitness accounts before and after, and actually by him as well giving testimony, was when the uh, Israeli forces surrounded the complex, they told everyone to leave, and then they called him out by name as the last person. He refused to leave, he wanted to stay with his patients. They said, come out of the hospital now or we will bomb it and kill every patient in there essentially. His staff were all outside. They brought him outside. The first thing they did was they made him strip naked in front of his whole team of staff and then made him go on his hands and knees onto the floor and chained him and took him into a car, bundled him, beat him for 14 hours straight, took him to detention center where there was a special room of you know highly uh, high interrogation sort of torture methods used for medics. So medics are separated from non-medics and they are treated differently. Again, what's the reason for this? Exactly. It comes back to it. Uh, you know, I, the, the details of what happened inside are horrific. They included beatings, electrocution, uh, conflict-related sexual violence. You know, this sort of stuff that we've seen before and it's not new. It's just it's happening in front of our TV screens. We never had Instagram in 20, 2008, in 2011, 2014. We never had these live videos and these testimonies in that way. But, um, you know, he was in captivity 46 days, allowed to change his diaper once a day, allowed to use a toilet that was shared with 700, 400 people once a day, and made to eat floor from uh, food from the floor like a dog. Literally, the food was on the floor and he was told to kneel down blindfolded and eat the food from the floor like he was some sort of animal. And, you know, for me that, uh, when you hear these stories, it absolutely enrages me, but it also makes it clear that this is systematic targeting. There is nothing else to describe it. And it also defies the claim that the pursuit somehow is peace. It defies and absolutely goes against every grain of any allegation that somehow Israel would want to make peace with the people that it, it is dealing with in such a way. Um, I mean, talking yeah. about, a, you know, anything such as a two-state solution is laughable when you look at the carnage and the story that you've just relayed, and I'm sure you have dozens of others, the dehumanization of the other. So why on earth would they ever entertain the idea of a state whereby those people are dealt with on equal measure and parity? It's... Uh, it's quite horrific, but also it brings the idea or the notion that when you target the medical sector, especially in such a constrained, limited uh, area of land, which is heavily populated, probably one of the most dense in the entire world, if not the yeah. most dense in the entire world. When you target the health sector in the way that we've seen, it seems to me like it's 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 in order to make that area inhabitable, um, void of any potential of life. Uh, I mean, we have the targeting of hospitals, which we saw time and time and time again. We saw, and you know, and you will tell us about the targeting of medics and health workers. We saw the targeting of ambulances. We saw the targeting of patients. I mean, on every single level, this is an elimination, an eradication, an uprooting of the kind of limit, limited um, healthcare system that is available to the res to, to the civilians, to the two million or so. And this was not an advanced healthcare system. This was a healthcare system on its knees from uh, since two thousand and seven, from a siege that has been ongoing, and a very poorly funded healthcare system with incredibly brave and heroic and hardworking medical staff and some of the best surgeons in the world, trauma surgeons in the world, working within limited context and limited resources. Now, there is no better way to eliminate a population than to go for the healthcare system and the public health infrastructure. Because 
the 30,000 death, the probably 10,000 under the rubble. So let's estimate there's 40,000 killed right now, as of today, or four months in from direct bombing. And this is not including the people who die from infection or die from their wounds two days later, which number in the tens of thousands. Now, on top of that, the excess mortality that results from inability to access care, ambulances not making it to your doorstep when you have a heart attack or a stroke, cancer patients who cannot have chemotherapy right now, children with cancer who have not had chemotherapy for three months, people with every chronic condition you can think of, these people are dying in their droves and they are dropping dead, literally. There are stories, eyewitness accounts of people waking up, chest pain, uh, falling over, found dead. No ambulance, nothing to go and pick them up. So, you know, there's research being done on this and it was published by Zena Jamal al-Din, who's an excellent um, epidemiologist based at the London School of Tropical Medicine. And she's about to publish some, you know, information about what she's projecting to be the mortality rates. But I would suspect we're talking about the hundreds of thousands. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is that bombing hospitals and then bombing water sanitation plants and then, you know, bombing bakeries and reducing your supply chain, but also creating an environment where infections will spread like wildfire, where hepatitis cases, cholera cases will be on the increase. Children are dying from malnutrition. This is a <coughs> sadly a fantastic way for the Israeli military to have a quick win in terms of heavy losses and in terms of trying to break the morale of the Palestinians in Gaza. I mean, part of it is psychological terrorism. What other reason would there be for drones to be circling, buzzing above your head 24 hours a day? apart from this noise creating some sort of psychological terror for these people, these children that are wetting themselves from that fear or the adults that are chronically depressed and chronically anxious because of this. You know, this form of psychological terrorism is also designed to break the spirit of Palestinians. And, and this was, again, talking to Dr. Khaled Dawes, others who just came out of Gaza, they said this, they said people are, there are people who have lost hope. A lot of people have lost hope in Gaza. They have said to Dr. Khaled and others, the West has given up on us. So we are either going to die here or we will be forced to go into Egypt, into Sinai. Now, whilst we hear about some, I, I don't want to um, issue a, a, camp, a, a sort of carpet judgment on the media and say none of this is being reported because from time to time, you know, we find that odd story about a particular medic being targeted or someone who's come from Gaza and is reporting on the dire situation and the such. But all in all, if you're, a, you know, someone who lives in the UK or in America, for instance, and relies on the media for your intake of news, you'd sort of get the idea that there's a problem, but never to the extent that you are describing and never ever to the extent that is actually unfolding on the ground. Do you not see that this is also part of the problem? It's multiplying the devastation that's befalling on people simply because, as you said just now, that doctors are having patients who are telling them the West has given up. And the West hasn't given up because the West has all the facts and sees all the images but because the West is being told the story that defies reality. I think if you're an average regular John Smith on the road in London or the UK, I think you probably have watched on Instagram the social media feeds showing what is actually happening. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, what we need to say is the majority of people, any survey that has been done in the UK has shown that 70% of people are pro-ceasefire. Pro 10% are against the ceasefire, and then there's a 20% of undecided fence as I call them, or silent majority, right? So the issue is at mainstream media level. And we saw this from day one. I remember very vividly, and this was what actually propelled me to start Gaza Medic Voices with my co-founders, uh, Rebecca Inglis and um, Tanya Hash Hassan, is that I was switching on the news. So I was, had my phone, and I have contacts in Gaza because I've been going in and out for the last 10 years treating, teaching, teaching medical students and junior doctors. And I was receiving messages saying, uh, Omar, show this to the world. This is what is happening inside Gaza. This is on the 9th of October and then 10th of October. So very early on, the same stuff we're seeing now. And I would switch on, I would look on my phone and I would check for BBC, Guardian, ITV. There was nothing. It was Israel's at war. Uh, 
you know, uh, 9-11 has happened in Israel. We've had f beheaded babies, raped women, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. For about a week, the coverage was purely on those individual cases from the 1400 that have been, uh, you know, now named. Meanwhile, in Gaza, you have carpet bombing, white phosphorus. Everything that we saw now was happening, but it was not there. It was completely ignored. So they had a weak head start. Even to this day, and I, I've done probably at least 40 or 50 media appearances speaking to TV, I notice the sort of language they use. And especially, I, you know, I, I'm very critical of the BBC, especially because they have this, um, they have explicit stuff, which is obviously biased, but then they have some subversive sort of language. So Palestinians died. Hind was found dead in her car. Hind was not found dead in her car. Hind, the six-year-old girl, the minor, not the six-year-old girl, the minor, as if she was a 14-year-old. This is a six-year-old girl. My daughter's seven years old. I do not call my daughter a minor. She is a child. Six-year-old girl was killed. And this use of language and the Hamas-led Ministry of Health reports. So why are we not calling this the Lucy Let Be Led NHS or the Tory-funded NHS? Why do we have to use this language? When I've called them out on this, they will cut you off. They literally cut me off mid-interview for stating that to them, to their face. Because for me, what is happening is the media is not reporting. The media, I see it as not all the media, and you're correct, there are some remnants and Channel 4 has done some great work. Others, even within Sky News, Alex Crawford, other journalists have been really actively pushing against this narrative. But overall, whoever the powers that be, I feel are almost pushing the agenda of the government forward. So they are almost facilitating the ability of the government. And not to... even sometimes, not even the British government, the Israeli government. For sure. I mean, the, this is the ludicrous thing. For me, as someone who monitors the media to assess the impact on the public, to assess the kind of trends, public opinion and the such, it baffles me. It baffles me that as ludicrous and as dire the situation and the stand of the British government. But sometimes, and you mentioned the BBC, and I'll reiterate, yes, the BBC specifically, sometimes you find goes even you know, further, over and beyond, and peddles something that not even the government can actually straight face you know, declare or say. And it's dangerous. It's extremely dangerous, particularly that you know, we're talking about a sector that is supposedly protected by, enshrined in international law, the protection of, that targeting, deliberately targeting a medical facility is seen as a war crime. It's a flagrant war crime, regardless of whether there are so-called tunnels underneath that particular hospital. That is a war crime. We've seen now how many war crimes? How many war crimes? I've lost count. I don't even recall how many hospitals in that limited area catering for two and a half million people have been absolutely flattened to the ground. So that, just to put it in perspective, that's double the population of Birmingham, the second largest city in the UK, with no functioning hospitals, no Queen Elizabeth Hospital, no Coventry General Hospital, no Wolverhampton Hospital, nothing. Literally no antenatal services. 50,000 women are pregnant, are unable to access basic antenatal services to check that their baby is okay. Children are on chemotherapy are unable to have their weekly dose of chemo that they need to survive, you know, um, leukemia, whatever they're going through. So it's, it's, it's crazy. And I, I, I think, you know, on that point of sanctity of healthcare, this is what started Health Workers for Palestine. Um, and for those who don't know, that's a grassroots civil society movement that myself and a few others set up, uh, British Egyptian doctors set up in solidarity with our colleagues on the ground, the people that are working in Gaza. And what, what really- When was this? This was 10th of November was our first vigil outside 10 Downing Street. And that was actually done in the face of uh, censorship because we were prevented from holding a fundraising event at the Royal College of Physicians for Gaza. Why? For security purposes. Security of whom? You? Security of the venue. And this was a week before the event. We were flying in guests from the UK and from the US and from Canada. We had everything sorted. We even offered them private security detail on the highest level to secure it. Then their response was, it'll be too complex. Too complex how? They wouldn't give any further answer. This was, I mean, so actually it ended up being 
a global civil society movement, so they did us a favor in some ways. So what I am seeing is these red lines are being crossed on a day-by-day -day basis. So the first time, you know, a hospital was targeted in the media, and it wasn't the first time it was targeted because it's been targeted decades in the making, was Al-Ahli Hospital. You know, we saw a hospital bombed, 500 people at least dead, however many more under the rubble. Dr. Ghassan Abu Sitta standing outside with dozens of children dead around him, which is not reported on any single mainstream media channel apart from Al Jazeera and the you know Turkish and other news networks and the Arabic news networks. And then the next day, the accusation is a rocket went up from Hamas and came back down. Came down. Uh, you know, like a cartoon. Was this the Ma'madani, the Baptist? Yes, this was the Al-Ahli, yeah, Al-Ma'madani, exactly. So what I'm saying is that these red lines are being crossed. And what is highly concerning is and I said this yesterday at an event, I, I asked a room of an audience of journalists, mainstream journalists, I said to them, how many of you have children Where was or this? at the Frontline Club in central London? So I said to them, how many of you have children, spouses, relatives that are medics? 70% of the room put their hand up. So I said, imagine your child who's at medical school right now told you, mom and dad, I'm going to Sierra Leone to work with MSF on a mission for a month. And that person, that child went there and you had no safety net to think that they will be protected anymore because they are a healthcare worker. Because Israel has set this the bar. They have said that actually it's okay to bomb hospitals. It's okay to target and snipe at medics. So once we've crossed that red line, there is no going back. We are at a point where if you are in flagrant uh, disregard for international law as a state, as a so-called state, of the most moral army in the world, as they call it, then do you think someone in Sierra Leone or Congo is going to care about shooting doctors? And the irony is I, as a medical student, spent two months in one of the most dangerous flavelas in Brazil, in Recife in the Northeast, working within an area that is completely out of the bounds of the police, controlled by drug lords. These drug lords, who probably most of them were some sort of, they killed someone, I'm sure they had killed someone, with their AK-47s were protecting the doctors during their home visits. They were keeping us, giving us security. They were actually very respectful, making sure that we got to the patients, we were safe, we were okay. Now, I look at that and I know these people, I look them straight in the face and I can see these are pretty twisted individuals. And then I look at the Israeli army who claim to be the most moral army in the world. And we've seen the videos, we've seen the, the videos of what they are doing, you know, these, um, um, videos, TikTok videos of them blowing up a house to music, uh, naming a house that's being blown up to a loved one back in Israel, rummaging through, um, you know, Ghazan uh, families, uh, drawers of underwear and uh, private affairs. So the, there is this disregard for humanity. And once we have crossed that red line, we are not only on a slippery slope, we are falling off the edge of the cliff. And I really worry about the future of any conflict, whether it's Gaza, Syria, um, Congo, wherever it is, what is going to stop us or stop the world from saying this is a red line? Because where is the red line now? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you're. Uh, I mean, you're focusing on on this and the implications of this, and the 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 the, the sort of incredibly dangerous, absolutely fatal situation that medics are uh, enduring in, in Gaza. Um, I look at it from another point of view and I see uh, an absolute fully fledged war crime uh, being committed time and time and time again. What baffles me, and obviously, I mean, we're talking about the here and now and as we're sitting here having this this uh, this conversation, people literally are dying. I mean, we're not even talking about figuratively. We're not exaggerating. People are dying as we're, we're, we're talking. Um, and from my perspective, I wonder what has become of the world's senses. Forget about anything else. Forget about, um, you know, the people's conscience, forget about people's humanity, people, people's faith, people's religion, people's... What has happened to the world's senses? These are war crimes 
as defined by the very laws that were written, drafted, and voted for by the very same class of people who now stand so disgracefully and call on Israel to be careful, you know, not to target civilians. Do, and, and this is the question that I ask myself, do these people not read modern history? I'm not talking about ancient history, modern history. Within the lifetimes of people like President Biden, for instance, who had to then move from their high it's offices and palaces to stand in Nuremberg. Absolutely. And, and something that I, you know, I even tweeted and I, and I tagged uh, Rishi Sunak and I tagged Keir Sam and I said, listen, you have stood by and encouraged war crimes being committed. You will be hauled before the ICC, ICJ, before the entire world one day. You might be 80 years old, 90 years old. You will be dragged and held to account for the crimes you are committing. Well, I mean, I would argue there that they have a precedent that they followed, which is Tony Blair and the Iraq War. Has Tony Blair gone anywhere near a prison cell? Has he gone anywhere near the ICJ or ICC? So you're right. They, well, in fact, they probably have studied modern history. And for them, they have seen the West get away time and time again with complicity in genocide, with um, lies and deception, you know, weapons of mass destruction, when clearly there was economic reasons to go into Iraq at that time. Um, and 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 what? But what I think is myopic and short-sighted of these politicians, and this is actually what I would, if I had Rishi Sunak in front of me, and I was giving him sort of trying to get some reaction out of him, I would say to him, I would actually forget what's happening right now because I don't think he cares about these people in Gaza. I really don't think he cares. I think for him, this is as a politician who's spineless. In his case, I think he cares about the here and now for his position and where will he be. So, uh, and, and maybe his legacy, which is probably, you know, related to why David Cameron's back in office as uh, foreign minister. So I would say to him, now you saw 9-11 happen and then take, wind back 10 years from that, what happened? It was, well, not even 10 years, a few years, it was second intifada, the first intifada. It was all back to Palestine. And 9-11 came and then you started bombing Iraq. And what happened after? Your cities were being targeted week in, week out. Terrorist attacks were happening in the streets of London. 50 people were killed, at least in the 7-7 atrocities. This happened as a result of this root cause. You found an ISIS uh, you know, band of uh, terrorists appearing from nowhere. So do you look at Gaza and not realize that these same children who have lost every single family member. We're not talking about mum and dad. We're talking about everyone on the civil registry with the same surname as them. Literally, they are the only surviving Al-Takriti, Abdel and They are literally the only surviving one from that family. Do you really think those kids are not going to, in 10 years time, take up arms and fight back against you? Especially that you've 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 treated them in in absolute flagrant uh, violation of every single law so why should they respect that law why should they observe that law why should they respect those who should be the bastions and defenders of that law but were the very first to see it being violated and do absolutely nothing in fact to egg on the perpetrator to encourage the perpetrator and to call for the killing and massacre of their parents, of their loved ones, the demolition of their house, and leave them absolutely homeless and open to the elements. I mean, it's 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 like I said. I mean, it's not even about religion anymore. It's not about consciousness. It's not about uh, humanity. It's it's about senses. Do people not, you know, see that this is? This is a cycle, just like you just said. It's a cycle of violence that you create, you perpetrate, and that is going to come back and harm you in ways that you can't even imagine today. But I mean, it it just shows of the of the the extreme short sightedness, not only of our politics, but it seems of essentially our leaders, um, generally speaking. Tell me, I mean, let's talk about health workers for Palestine. I mean, what what do you see? What what are you doing? And what do you see is going to be your main focus in the coming days, weeks? Hopefully, hopefully, inshallah, when we get to some sort of ceasefire, um, what what do you see your your mission as being? 
So in the short term, I think we are all, and this has been my pr primary sort of message day in, day out, is every ounce of our being should be directed at trying to somehow push for a ceasefire. Because, you know, sending aid in, sending supplies in, sending medical teams is all well and good. But under these conditions, it just does not, it's it's a drop in the ocean because whatever is going in is not going on in sufficient quantities. There is no ability to rebuild when you have continuous bombing and you're seeing Rafah about to be attacked now. So our purpose, our mission initially was very much to, as health workers, to stand up and say, you know, we are parts of civil society. We are doctors, medics, and we want to cease fire right now. Now, beyond that, and I've talked about this, this sanctity of healthcare. I think we have created enough of a network around the world and enough people that have so enraged by what they've seen that they really feel never again. This cannot happen again. And wherever it may be, Palestine is the start of it, but wherever it may be, whichever conflict happens next, I think we would be in a primary position to make sure that we are in House of Lords and you know that House of Parliament within lobbying advocacy working with MPs to directly say to them, do you realize these are the atrocities that happened within these hospitals? What are you going to do to make sure that disregard for for red lines or for um, international law is never um, crossed again? So that's one action. The other action we are, you, you know, we, we are holding these weekly vigils, but now we have moved on from that. And we feel very strongly that actually that pressure on the ground is important and that needs to be amplified by, you know, economic pressure. You need to ramp up the volume. And that includes people like me, like the other doctors, the other nurses within our team, messaging everyone and passing that message on that there needs to be some sort of boycott, divestment, sanctions need to be applied. And that is so crucial because money talks here. Which is now being outlawed in this country. Yeah, which is an absolute disgrace. And not only that, this is subversive. So, you know, the, the fact that our own British values, democratic values are for me sitting under the rubble of, of, of Gazan workhouses because we see this protest law Rishi Sunak could come out and make a statement, 1984-like, Orwellian-like, to say covering your face in a protest will constitute you being arrested on the spot. And these claims that we are hate marches. If anyone came to one of our marches, a silent procession on Saturday from St. Thomas's Hospital with a thousand healthcare workers to 10 Downing Street, there was nothing but sadness, love, peace, and hope within that group. There was no hate speech. We made it very clear we do not accept any form of Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, hate speech. This is not us. Medics generally are people who care and empathetic. Now, I think, you know, coming back to that democratic values and, and that being under the rubble, I think this is where we need to hold our MPs to account. And that is our, so our purpose is essentially a lobby group. That is how I see us. I see us as being there on the streets in, within the MPs offices, within every institution, every hospital in the UK, every medical institution to have our representatives making sure that this issue does not die. Because we are at the moment, what I call the roof. We were at the floor in terms of Palestine activism. We are currently at the roof. This is the maximal capacity. Once this issue becomes less prominent, we will start dropping down to the floor. Now that ceiling and that floor paradigm I don't want us as a community to go back down to the floor. We need to be somewhere in between. We cannot sustain being at that ceiling forever because people get burnt out. We see this fatigue from people being protesting despite the hundreds of thousands on the streets of London every two weeks. But our, our role is to make sure that this does not fall out of the public attention. This does not get forgotten about. These IDF so IOF soldiers have come back, dual citizens, and some of them are medics, by the way, who have come back from Gaza having committed war crimes and are walking around the streets of London and the UK, whilst you know the, the brides of ISIS fighters are being denied their passports to come back to the UK. This sort of double standard needs to be called out for what, it's, what it is. And, and this is our role. I see ourselves as a long-term presence alongside the PSC, alongside um, FOA and you know these, these big institutions within the healthcare field to make sure that pressure is applied and does not abate, and it is there. My, I mean, one of the things that uh, that I do is now to propagate, uh, uh, you know, how particularly the Muslim community, but not just the Muslim community, the pro-Palestinian community, which is, uh, 
expanding. It's 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 substantial in size and it's expanding every single week. And with 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 the longer that this goes on, the massacre goes on, more and more people join, and voices from all corners of the community, including Jewish voices. Um, and one of the things I'm concerned with is how do we show uh, politicians who will be standing uh, for elections this year sometime, how do we show them how we feel about their performances, their statements, their stands in regards with what took place in, in Gaza? Now, I, I recognize the fact that the British public has so many issues, including the NHS, by the way. Here in our country, I mean, it's been what the issue for now nigh on twenty years, the the crumbling state of the NHS, the um, waiting time, the respond the respond uh, responding time for ambulances and emergency services, um, uh, you know, waiting lists and, and all these the, these issues that we continue to talk about the the lack of funding for NHS, the uh, sort of very poor state of our hospitals and clinics. So all of this are our major issues. But how is it, do you think, that we could insert into the narrative to the British electorate what just happened in Gaza? And how is it that we can make sure that the politicians who took stands egging on Israel, uh, promoting its, uh, its war crimes, how is it possible that the British public can send them a message? I actually think it's very easy to link the two because in a very simple terms, your taxpayers' money right now, you know, the 40% tax that me and you pay from our wages is going directly to fund Israeli arms. Is literally funding a genocide that is being undertaken by genocidal maniac war cabinets in the Israeli government on civilians in Gaza. So those millions and probably multiple, you know, multi-millions of pounds sterling that are being sent could have been better spent within your own healthcare system. They could have been spent on your NHS. They could have been spent to sort, sort the housing problem, the homelessness issue, the fact that uh, we have crumbling public services, the fact that we are striking every week in every sector of society and our government just, you know, doesn't really give a monkeys about it. So, you know, that that's one way to Basically, and this is not this is not an exaggeration. That is a reality. There is money being given to a state that may end up leading to your government, the British government, being, you know, uh, convicted of war crimes down the line. So this UK complicity needs to be thrown in the face of the MPs. And I know many organisations, Save the Children, Medical Aid Palestinians, Amnesty, are working within government to bring this message across. Say, do you really, you know, Mr. Keir Starmer, do you really want you to be standing in front of the ICJ? at some point because of your complicity in this? Or do you want to backtrack now and, and start focusing on the issues at hand? So I think that's one one thing. I think, um, as you said, the pro-Palestine movement is so diverse and it is more getting more and more diverse by the day. You know, uh, at our last procession, our speaker list, you know, 10 speakers, there were two Jewish voices, two young Jewish activists from the anti-Zionist uh, uh, Jewish community. There was a South African uh, MP ex labor councillor who stepped down. There was a priest, Reverend uh, Simon from uh, the Baptist Church in London. There were LGBTQ community represented. There was every sector of society because this is, as you said, this is not about Jews versus Muslims. This is not about ethnicity, race. This is about humanity. And these people are seeing. Churches have been bombed. Exactly. Christians churches have been killed. Yeah, absolutely. Palestinian the first Christians. hospital you mentioned, the Lehli, is a Christian Baptist hospital. Yeah, and and this is you know the same in the West Bank. You see in Jerusalem, uh, Palestinian Christians being targeted uh, within their own places of worship. This is this has been going on for you know seventy five years of occupation. So I think that's um, it's important to mobilize, and I see our role within that. And you know the, there is we even hear rumblings now that the Labour Party is concerned about the Muslim vote, mm. and and and. Rightly so, because Muslims are outraged. Six million Muslims in this country have seen that the Labour Party, who they necessarily is one of the, you know, most of them would support, they have seen them completely be complicit in this because they have stood as opposition in House of Parliament and basically egged on Rishi Sunak to continue, 
you know, allowing Israel to win, as he said it, literally as he said it. So uh, the messaging, and we've seen, you know, I'm, I was very happy to hear the news that um, the independent um, uh, person running for against Keir Starmer is a yeah. South African Andrew Jew yeah. who was in the ANC alongside Nelson Mandela. These are the kind of people we should be pushing to stand up and teach those guys a lesson. Because when Keir Starmer loses his seat, in his office, he won't be able to run for prime minister and that will have cost him dearly. And he should be paying a heavy price for what, what he has done. You mentioned the, uh, I mean, the interesting, and I, I, I agree with you entirely that telling people that their tax money is going to fund um, a crime that is being committed and for which Britain and its people will be condemned forever, forever. And the fact that we have so many problems, so many troubles here at home, the cost of living crisis, which is on everyone's mind, the fact that we have a proliferation of food banks at every corner. I mean, it's it's ridiculous that in, in certain constituencies, the local MP makes an announcement every other week that he's going to, you know, open a food bank. It's as though people don't realize that this is... An, an unacceptable situation, whilst at the same time funding the Israeli genocidal machine to the to the tune of billions and billions. I mean, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, an American journalist pointed out the fact that in America, the most you know the leader of the free world, the greatest democracy as it's called, has every single day more than a million people living on the streets in freezing cold weather, um, sometimes families, and yet America can afford somehow to spend tens of billions in military aid and direct financial assistance and the such to Israel every single year. That surely must create outrage amongst the people, surely. Absolutely, I think, you know, bringing it back to the UK, one just example that is so clear and, you know, you were talking, and I was talking about boycott and divestment. So I'll give you an example. The NHS, our own National Health Service, which, you know, clearly is there to protect, save lives and look after children and women and men of the UK. They signed the contract of to the tune of 300 million pounds sterling to spyware firm, an American Israeli spyware firm named Palantir. And that is supposedly to allow them to work on the cybersecurity infrastructure within the UK. Now that same company is essentially, you know, directly involved with the Israeli government who are committing a genocide about against Gaza. So the double standards and actually the ludicrousness of having the NHS saving lives and technically handing over $300 million or pounds to a genocidal government is just, you know, these very clear examples is where we need to be targeting. And that contract is done and dusted. There are others that are in the pipeline. There are, you know, biotech firms, there are Israeli um, uh, companies, tech companies that are essentially benefiting from this genocide. And this is where we need to hit them. We have seen, you know, and this is what I love about social media. You know, we have seen kids in their teens not going to Starbucks and so not eating their burger from McDonald's, basically in solidarity with Palestinians, you know, and, and this is the sort of economic pressure that needs to be applied on a global scale. And that's when I, when I go and speak in these marches, I say to everyone, every single one of you has a power inside of you. And that power might be, you know, an atom's worth of power, but when you are collective in your numbers, that adds so much weight and that economic pressure has to be felt. When 1500 employees of Barclays go and pull all their savings out of you know the the cash machine that is going to exert some sort of economic pressure on Barclays and they will have to at executive level go and think about their policies and what they are investing in when we go as uh, employees within our corporate jobs and say to them why are we being asked to um, pay our health insurance to AXA who we know are on the BDS list and we do this in mass then they have to revisit it because you know, that is the power of the people. It may be that we are unable to move the political needle on an individual level, but when we are in this collective 
number and we were applying real economic pressure, that is when the political needle will and have to shift. We've seen this. I mean, the numbers that um, regarding the stock value of the likes of Starbucks and McDonald's and the like, I mean, we've seen this. We've seen how various branches of McDonald's around the world have issued statements saying, oh, this is because of the misinformation going around or Starbucks rebranding themselves in Dublin airports as Vista Coffee and the such. We've seen the impact that it could you know, bring when the collective acts in a, in a unanimous way. And the key is the collective and the key is it's structured and it's thought out. So the, 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 um, the risk is that when this ceiling comes down towards the floor, that that collective and that ability to mobilize starts to dissipate because people are too busy with their jobs or too busy with their livelihoods. But this is where it's really important to have organizations like ours, like PSC, like, you know, the big players in this to keep mobilizing. And uh, that, that, you know, that, that cannot stop, essentially, that just needs to keep going. Um, I, uh, you know, it's a must. I mean, I, I hail from Iraq, you hail from, from Egypt. I have to ask you a question, albeit I might be able to venture a guess. We've talked about Britain, we've talked about America. What about the neighboring countries? What's about you know, the Arab world, what's what's happening? So the, the short answer is, I think um, it's difficult. So I think, first of all, I have been very careful about not criticizing the Arab governments openly, not because I don't think they are complicit in this, which I think they are. But and I think because we you need to, access. No, but actually, because I actually worry that we are diverting attention from the actual perpetrators. The actual real perpetrators on the ground are the Israelis, the Americans, the US, Canada, Australia, the big countries that are funding this. I don't think Egypt is sending billions of dollars to the Israeli government. What they are doing is they're allowing a blockade to continue on Gaza. They are not opening borders or allowing Aden, you know, at the behest of the Israeli military. Uh, we are seeing normalization within Saudi, within UAE, within these countries that you know, historically were enemies of the state of Israel. And yet, you know, when, when it comes to economic uh, need, money talks and if money means that you know if 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 money talks means we need you know the help of israelis then that so be it even if they are genocide or maniacs so you know what actually what i want to make a point about is these protests and i'm very lucky and privileged to be a dual citizen and to be living in the uk i appreciate that and i despite me saying that British values are under the rubble at a governmental level, the fact that I can go and stand on 10 Downing Street and shout and call Rishi Sunak a war crim criminal and then not get arrested by police, that is a blessing in disguise. When, when I see my colleagues in Iraq, in Egypt, in other countries, going out and sticking their head above the parapet and saying even something to the tune of, you know, free, free Palestine and then getting sent behind bars, you know, that that just shows that the 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 pervasive ability to just crack down on any sort of form, form of free speech. So for me, anyone who stands up and protests in front of a high court in Egypt or in front of a street in Baghdad and does this, that is a real hero because I think, I actually do think about this. I think if I was in their position, would I have been as brave to do what I'm doing now there? And I don't know, I genuinely don't and know. And the fact is, I mean, this is, I mean, in, in addition to what you just said, but the fact is the vast majority of the British public, according to every single survey, agrees with us. And that's, you know, in itself is an incredible blessing. And obviously a blessing brought by the sacrifice and the images that come from Gaza and the pain and the suffering that come from Gaza, but it still is something to behold. The fact that we share a platform with more than 80% of the British public. I mean, that in itself is some, and, and to be perfectly honest, I mean, I, uh, I mean, I, I always like to sort of look forward. Okay, so what's next? What do you expect is going to happen? What do you think is going to transpire beyond just a ceasefire, which might come in a few days, a few weeks, probably even a few months after more thousands of thousands have, have lost their lives. But I'd like to look beyond that. When is it that we can see a transformation in, in our polit political situation, in the status quo? And I don't just mean a free Palestine, but I mean a world that abides by its international laws, a, a world order that stands by the very charters and declarations and treaties and the such that it itself instigated. When is it that we can see a world that 
that values human life equally, regardless of faith, ethnicity, color, or the such. Do do you see us heading uh, that way? I think uh, for me, it's we're at a precipice. So we are literally standing at a precipice, and I think Palestine is symbolic of a much larger issue, which you've just alluded to, and I've said this in some speeches. This old world order, which is built on you know post Second World World War Geneva Conventions, UN. WHO that have shown themselves to be impotent and ineffective because they are led by essentially an American foreign policy of globalization and, and imperialism, new form of economic imperialism. Um, and, and we are at that precipice. If we at this point in an ongoing live televised genocide cannot change that status quo and cannot push against that status quo and we fail, then we are doomed. But I genuinely have the same as you, an optimistic viewpoint and a hope that I'm seeing led by South Africa, led by the, and I don't like the term global south, but it's basically people that are not in power currently, people that are the street, the people on the streets who are standing up and, and raging at what is happening. You see it in Africa, colleagues who are traveling to Kenya, to Congo, to Nigeria saying to me, people in the streets are raging about what is happening in Palestine. They're even forgetting their own issues and they are so engrossed by what is happening because the double standard is so clear. Ukraine was in itself a blessing for Palestine because it just showed it so clearly, the comparison. So I think, um, we are close to some sort of disruption. Now, I don't know whether that will be in the next year, five years, 10 years, century, I don't know. But what, what has to happen is there has to be a change to the status quo because it is unimaginable to continue down this road. And what I also stress, and this is where people like Extinction Rebellion and you know, um, stop, um, uh, the sort of pro-climate change, uh, you know, uh, activists is we are losing our eye or missing the target, which is what is incoming in the next 50 to 100 years. Every scientist has said to us that we are about to enter climate catastrophe. We are about to enter a century where our children will live in much worse conditions than me or you or our parents or our grandparents even lived in because the situation is headed towards ecosystem collapse. Now, when we are spending our time worrying about bombing each other and creating even more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And we're forgetting, taking our eye off the target, which is this major issue for humanity as a species, we're effectively dooming ourselves even more. So I really do believe um, that this issue itself needs to be tied in with the Palestine issue and with the issue of conflict, because we cannot spend the next 50 years blowing each other up. They have to work together as a collective world humanity to actually tackle the real issues and the real potential catastrophes that are waiting around the corner for us thank you